Welcome to THK Toku Heroes and Kaiju, back from a small hiatus after the uh, fascinating Final Wars episode. <laughs> I'm uh, Seb Gooday, and I'm joined as always by Dustin Mills. Hello. Today we've uh, decided we're going to go the route of talking about something that's got, you know, a bit of structure to it. Some movies that are, you know, traditionally good, in our opinion anyways. We're going to be uh, shining a spotlight on Shinji Higuchi, the special effects director and filmmaker of, well, quite a few notable tokusatsu and kaiju movies, uh, including stuff we've already discussed on here in the past. Uh, Higuchi is probably best known for his work as an effects director on the 90s Gamera trilogy, as well as his early work in Godzilla 1985, amongst other films. But today, we're going to spotlight three movies that he served as the actual director on, or co-director in one case. Starting with the 2015 duology of Attack on Titan live-action adaptations. For those who are unfamiliar, Dustin, do you want to give a rough idea of what Attack on Titan is? Yeah, sure. And, I, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe the plot as it stands in the movie, because I'm not super familiar with the uh, source material. Which is maybe why I like the movies so much. Um, <clears throat> so, in the world of Attack on Titan, at some point, uh, centuries ago, we're at a at an indistinct point in the future um, in Japan. And at least a century ago, I think they say the timeline twice and it changes. Uh, but at least a hundred years ago, Titans appeared. And Titans are these massive humanoid monsters of various shapes and sizes. And they eat human beings... And they wiped out most of the world. And so uh, the survivors in Japan built massive walls. There's a there's a three concentric walls that they live behind to uh, hide from the Titans. And they've kind of returned to a simpler life of uh, farming and stuff like that. Um, they're basically peasants. Everybody's dirty in this movie. And then uh, we have our three uh, main protagonists, uh, Armin, Aaron and Mikasa who dream of seeing the ocean they want to see the sea they want to see what's on the other side of the wall and they go to visit the wall and as they're having their daydreams uh, a colossal titan appears kicks a hole in the outermost wall and the outermost area of their um, walled city is filled with titans anew and they massacre their town and we jump ahead a little bit to now we have a group of trained soldiers with new gear to fight the Titans. And that's kind of what kicks off the story. Yeah, so uh, the uh, plot of the source material, which started as a manga and became a very popular anime, is pretty similar. There are notable differences, which we'll get into. Well, I'll get into at least because I uh, decided to just brush up on some background with the source material. But uh, that's essentially it. It's probably best described as a zombie apocalypse scenario but the zombies are giant uh yeah it's very much like zombie apocalypse but with kaiju yeah uh i know that some people have drawn comparison to stuff like uh, war of the gargantuas as well i know higuchi said that was an influence on the two movies so if that sounds appealing to you there's a whole slew of attack on titan stuff out there including like i said a manga an anime series there's a live action mini series that went along with the movies but we're focusing on the pretty divisive duology that Shinji Higuchi directed, which 
I'll, I'll get into a bit of the background history before I go too much further with it because the road to these movies was pretty... I don't want to say it was messy, but it had a long history. Basically, there were talks of a live-action movie as far back as 2011. Uh, around 2013, there was some actual movement with it, with Toho hiring Tetsuya Nakashima to direct it. He's probably best known for having directed The World of Kaneko, which is a pretty well-regarded thriller. Uh, he left around late 2013 because of creative differences. What those were, I couldn't really find out. But he was quickly replaced by Higuchi. Higuchi originally wanted to make a very faithful to the word adaptation of the manga, but the author, Hajima Isayama, decided that he didn't have any interest in allowing that to happen. He felt that the story had been told in the manga and the anime, and doing it a third time would be pointless. So he insisted that Higuchi go forth and do his own thing with the, uh, with the concept. I'm saying all this as a fuck you to every anime nerd who hates this movie. <laughs> because yeah, there's to, a lot to of say, them. At least, at least Higuchi had the author's blessing. It, yes. it wasn't a betrayal. The author wanted him to do his own thing. Exactly. He wanted him to leave his own stamp on it. And Higuchi's a big kaiju nerd. And you can kind of tell it, it, because he just... The way he directs effects and in the way he kind of structures action sequences you can tell he loves showing off his monsters which made attack on titan a really good vehicle for him as a director uh his adaptation varies in the sense that some character dynamics are shifted around our main character aaron played by the late haruma mura is uh, a little less aggressive and driven than he is in the anime he's more human i'd say here uh, Mikasa yeah, he, takes a lot of his anime uh, counterparts elements in that regard. They shifted the the shonen hero elements from him to Mikasa, basically. Um, I feel Which is like a great from, choice. I think so too, because um, from what I I've seen a couple episodes of the anime, and he's he's um, not to say he's stereotypical there, but he's he's definitely more of a traditional shonen hero. He's he's a guy you've seen before. At least in the beginning, from what I saw. Yeah, he's... Uh, he, I feel like it helps, especially in the context of a movie, because shonen heroes in anime like that, they're kind of designed to get stronger and tougher <laughs> over the course of a stupid amount of episodes. This is more of a traditional... This is more of a traditional hero's journey kind of story. Um... We've also got several new characters who did not appear in the source material. The most notable of which, of which rather, is uh, Shikishima, played by Hiroki Hasegawa, who's an actor I'm very fond of. We'll probably talk about his performance a little bit later on. I, what I was watching is like, I bet Seb loves this guy. Oh, dude, he's so good. He's so good. Um, he's also the lead in Shin Godzilla, which we'll talk about later. Uh, we have, uh, rounding up the... Supporting cast, we have a bunch of veteran actors as well, like Pierre Taki, who's a famous folk musician in Japan, playing Soda, who's a great character who kind of gets uh, a rough deal in the second part of this. And Kubal, our main villain, played by the great Junin Kunimura, who most people probably know as Boss Tanaka from the Kill Bill movies. So, I think that Dustin and I 
we, we both saw the first one when it came out maybe a year after the fact. Like, I saw it almost immediately when it came to North America. I think I, I got it for uh, Christmas on Blu-ray the year it came out, I believe. So that's yeah. when I saw it for the first time was basically a, a few days after Christmas 2015, probably, or 2016. I don't remember. Yeah, and I think that we were both pretty impressed at the time. I remember when I first saw it, and obviously there are going to be spoilers here, so if you haven't seen it, that's too bad. But <laughs> at the end, it turns out that our main character, Aaron, can turn into one of these giant monsters himself, and the first part culminates in this glorious, visceral, splattery monster fight where he just massacres a bunch of titans. He's just punching their heads, and the heads are exploding, and it's... It's so good, and I feel like that was probably the moment that made me realize, oh shit, the, these movies are made by uh, somebody who, somebody of the same ilk as I think Dustin and I in terms of how we love to see this kind of stuff portrayed. Yeah, I was I was fully thinking this time when I watched it because it's been it's been a while. It's been at least a year or two since I since I've watched these, and especially when it got to the part you're talking about the 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 climactic fight scene between it's not even really a fight scene because they don't really fight back like Aaron just <laughs> destroys them um <clears throat> I was like uh this is this is probably how I would handle a kaiju movie if I if I had my druthers it would be this splattery and this wild and I would hope that I could there is just something about the we might be getting ahead of ourselves, but there's just something about the impacts in this movie of even in the human on human fight scenes, you feel the punches. And when it's a Titan fight scene, the punches are punctuated by gallons of glop and gore and um, particles and smoke because, you know, the there's this this thing where the Titans are hot, like their body temperature is crazy hot and the bigger they are, the hotter they are. And so there's just so much going on when one gets injured, like just steam spraying and goop spraying. And it's just, it's just really, really fucking glorious. Um, which yeah, if I, you can't, like... I was just gonna say, if you can't tell Seb and I, at least I don't know about you on this watch on this rewatch for me, it just confirmed my love for these movies. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, you know, want to talk about a hot take right now. I genuinely think these are two of my all-time favorite movies. Wow. Like, I, I love them so much. And I'm glad you mentioned lots of goop, because the important thing is that whereas the manga in particular, the, the anime is violent, but it kind of tones down some of the bloodshed. The manga is very bloody. This replaces blood with slime. Yeah, the blood is super, super thick. Like, it comes out yeah. in these big gushes like it just it's like viscous yeah and it's not just when monsters die when people die they like explode like they burst into little bubbles of blood yeah or when they get bitten it looks like john carl beekler designed it where there's just like strings of gore you know they um what's the painting the painting is like chronos eating his children or something yeah. like that you you see a lot of that like callbacks to that imagery in this of just human beings getting picked up and chomped on and it is so nasty and what's wild is the movie strikes this balance because as i was, when i was you know summarizing the plot i talked about the attack on their village at the very beginning of the film and that entire sequence is horrifying 
like it's it's horrifying because it's it's realistic people are getting trampled they're getting squished up against things the titans are like re- just the way they hungrily reach for people and laugh when they get somebody and eat them um all of that is is horrifying and it turns your stomach but then later during the big action sequences which are just as violent somehow the movie convinces you that it's awesome now which is wild to me like i don't know where how the tonal shift happens and maybe it just happens within me maybe everybody who watches the movie wouldn't get that but i feel like in the beginning it horrified me and then later on it excited me yeah it higuchi does this thing and i you know i i give a lot of credit to him as a director to the cast for their performances and also to shiro sagasu's score where it kind of strikes the perfect balance between being terrifying being fun and being like borderline surreal at times like there's something very bizarre and dreamlike about just seeing these giant people wander through this like apocalyptic landscape picking folks up and eating them and these the the titans are um except for in in a couple of instances where some cg is used they're they're practical they're they're mostly like 99 percent practical either people in suits or people wearing makeup or people in masks. Um, And that adds to how upsetting it is because some of them literally just look kind of like people who are gray, but have no, they have no nipples. They have no genitalia. They're like these big mannequin things. And then you have some who are really freakish looking. There's a little one that, that cracks me up every time he shows up because he hops around and he has this big, weird looking cartoon proportioned head. But then there are some that are so subtly deformed that's really upsetting. There's one that you see a lot in the first movie that has very tiny eyes that are too far apart. And that's it. That's the only weird thing about him. And it's really disturbing. And the, the dreaminess you're describing kicks in for me when you hear the Titans laugh. Because something I appreciate about the way the Titans are portrayed in this is they're not portrayed as being evil humans are evil in this the titans are and i feel like this extends into shin godzilla as well but we'll get there the titans are basically innocents who are just hungry and that's how they act and when they get a hold of a person they just giggle and laugh like they're so excited that they get to eat and the laugh is distorted and weird and not at all evil which makes it more upsetting like it's very very disconcerting like they're they're a good villain because they are so upsetting in every way they are and they really fill the monster cody into this well by making each one unique in its own way like i think maybe they reuse certain prosthetics here and there but for the most part each titan is pretty distinct in terms of design yeah you can spot them you can you can pick your favorite titan and and until they die you can find them in the scenes like you know the there's i can think of like three right now right off the top of my head that i remember from the from the movie who show up several times and like obviously there's some that are more distinct than others you mentioned the colossal titan which is this especially big skinless one uh which is kind of like the alpha of the bunch uh the aaron titan itself looks like a heavy metal mascot looks like the thing from iron maiden yeah (laughs) um they and then there's some... the the um well maybe we don't want to talk do we want to talk about the armored titan yet we'll we'll get there in a moment okay, because okay, okay. It, uh but i'm also glad that you mentioned how good the human action is in this because there are several like 
human-on-human -human fight scenes too, and those are every bit as exciting as any of the creature stuff as well. And uh, they tie in and set up and pay off the creature action as well in like the best possible way. I know. Oh, you're thinking of the exact moment I'm thinking of, I bet. You're talking about the <laughs> yeah. knee to the face, right? The knee to the face. Is, it's so beautiful the way they set it up and pay it off. I love it so much. Yeah, it's great. And something that's, I think, again, really sells this is how everyone involved seems 100% committed to this project. There's not a hint of irony. No one's phoning it in. Everyone is super in on this movie, which I love. Um, uh, Har uh, Haruma Mura, who plays Aaron, he could have just played it off as like a pretty standard hero role. He gives it a lot of depth, I think. He really goes for it. He, um, <clears throat> especially in the really dramatic scenes where he has to be really angry or really upset, um, he's 100% sincere and he, he goes for it as hard as he possibly can. Like you can see the like veins bulging in his forehead. Like I, I bet he almost passed out on some of those takes from how hard he was going. I have zero doubt of that. Um, she's written way more interestingly here than in the source material, I think, but Kiko Mizura who plays Mikasa, she's so good because she goes kind of through this transformation where after the titans attack the village she's very withdrawn and very cold and you get to see a little bit more of the real her as the two movies progress and i think she sells that so beautifully yeah it she's probably one of the most dynamic characters too because she starts in one place goes another and then kind of comes back to where she started a little bit like regains a little bit of who she was um you know, the funny thing about Mikasa is, um, so uh, Andy Muschietti, who directed the It films, is planning on remaking these movies specifically, I think, for some reason, which is really weird. Um, but they're changing uh, Mikasa's name for the sake of American audiences. They're changing it to Sue. So I guess you could say Mikasa is Sukasa. I cannot be stopped! <laughs> <laughs> my head is in my hands <laughs> uh, I probably just blew out the audio I'm sorry Jacob uh, I, you have no idea how long I've been saving that Seb I was saving that up I'm sorry um, the remake is really happening the Sue thing is fake <clears throat> sorry that was I'm so, I couldn't god resist. damn it I'm sorry I, I, son of a I bitch had, I had to <laughs> Sorry, sorry, sorry. Every okay. episode, Dustin has at least one moment where he just throws me right off. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of my favorite. Thing. I know. <laughs> uh, so, but no, she's great. Um, big fan of hers. Um, and, you know, I kind of touched upon it before, but I think that the movie, both of the movies for me at least, belong to Hiroki Hasegawa's performance, which alternates between being like cartoonishly charming and cartoonishly creepy yeah yeah de depending on what this the you know the scenes need him to do of course also maybe cartoonishly queer coded in some of the scenes i think oh yes oh yes <laughs> um, um i well i want to say i want to interject here for just a second because i do love him but there's there is there is one performance in this uh that is my absolute 100 percent favorite Oh, I think and I know it who it's is, gonna be. It's uh, Satomi Ishihara. Yes. As Hans, 
who it's a little bit of a tragedy the character because she's also in Shin Godzilla. Yes. It is, it is a little bit of a tragedy the character she we'll talk about it, but that she plays in Shin Godzilla because she is so amazing in this and so bad in Shin Godzilla. But it's not her fault. No. But she is I don't even know how to describe it. Like she is so full of energy, borderline psychotic, um, just whooping and hollering at violence and things blowing up and getting to use weapons. And she is just a joy to watch. And I think she is all around my favorite character in the movies. You know, it's funny. Cause when I said that everyone is so committed in this, she is who came to mind. Um, yeah. like, and I mean, that's a fun role, even on paper, that is a fun character to play, but she goes for it. And there's like so much glee, especially towards the end when uh, of the first part, that is when the Aaron Titans ripping apart all the other ones. And she's just (laughs) ecstatic at the sight of it. There are parts where it almost looks like she's about to break into song. She's so excited. Like she's just a, she's a joy to watch. I think it's uh, performances like that. And to an extent, Asagawa's performance too, because they're both kind of scenery chewing roles. It kind of adds to the anime vibe of it. They legitimately feel like anime characters come to life. For sure. There's there's a moment in particular with Hans where she gets excited about like a tank and like yeah. crawls into it like like a cartoon character. Like I, I don't know how to describe it. When you watch the movie, you'll see what I'm talking about. But she basically dives headfirst into the hatch of a vehicle and then like her butt disappears and then her feet disappear. And then the hatch slams shut. Like it's the, it's one of the silliest visuals in the movie, but I love it so much because it's so in character. So I, because this is a movie that's kind of been split into two parts, it's difficult to talk about it as both one film and as two separate films. Cause they're really meant to be one long thing. Uh, that being said, I remember when the second part came out, I was kind of disappointed by it. It, it just didn't feel quite up to the standards in terms of energy and buildup that the first part had. Did you have the same reaction to it the first time around? The first time, yeah, but not this time. No. And this I, time... Think... Go ahead. Uh, th- this time I walked away realizing that I kind of like the second part more. I had a feeling you would say that. I was like, because I, I don't know which one I like more. I Watching them, here's what I'll say. I think me not appreciating the second one as much the first time is because I watched it far apart from the first one. Mm-hmm. If you watch these like one right after the other, which is basically what I did, um, they fit pretty perfectly. Uh, mm-hmm. this, part two really feels like the ending that part one needs. Um but uh, I, as I was watching, I was just like, this one feels more Sebi. It is. Than that... the first one. So, yeah, I, I kind of had a feeling you would feel that way. Yeah, so, like, uh, part one ends with the Aaron Titan defeating the others and then returning back to normal Aaron form. Then part two opens with a flashback. We find stuff out about Aaron's father being a scientist who is doing Titan research and... Uh, it opens with like these biopunk opening credits that swirl and turn to like twisty, veiny things. And I'm like, oh man, that's that's good. That's some good <laughs> stuff. And like close-ups of syringes and like weird like Victorian era mad doctor imagery. Like, Fuck, part two's kind of sweet. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, 
then we kind of get like this long stretch of exposition from Jun Kunimura's villain character, Kubal. He's the head of the military order that Eren and Mikasa and the others are working for. He wants to kill Eren. Uh, then the armored titan, who is actually Shikishima, comes through, crushes Kubal and his soldiers. And then it goes so stylistically different from where it was before, because now we're in like this white room with a jukebox, Shikishima's dressing like a droog from A Clockwork Orange, and <laughs> yeah. everything's a canted angle, and like, yeah, dude, it's, it's fucking sweet. The jukebox is playing um, uh, The End of the World by, I can't remember the artist, it's an old song, um, and then uh, uh, Homeboy uh, completely <laughs> misinterprets the meaning of the song, but like, I guess it works for the plot, but he's like, he's like, here's what the song means, and I'm like, no, it doesn't, but that's fine, <laughs> it works for the movie. <laughs> it's like... It's so much more stylistically interesting than anything we've seen. Like, I love the look of the first movie and everything else, of course. But, like, just this, like, white room, again, shot with very canted angles. And, you know, you got Hasegawa's performance and that one random needle drop right there. I don't know. There's just something that just fits so well about it for me this time around. And I just gelled with it nicely. I think that moment and then also the flashback where we see... Um... Aaron as a kid, uh, you know, being experimented on and stuff like that. Those are nice breaks from the rest of the action because the movies are basically almost 100% outdoors where everything is dirty and gray and cloudy. So having um, a couple of breaks where the scenery changes a little bit is is a, is nice too, just to, to break it up a little bit so the whole movie doesn't feel visually the same. Yeah, no, I agree. It um, And it also allows... Higuchi as a director to like show a little bit of range in terms of what he can do as well like uh, when they're in the village at the beginning of the first part it's pretty like intricate set design and all that but everything beyond that's pretty minimalist but he does a lot with it like again that just plain white room he gets a ton of mileage out of that yeah for sure um, he's, he's helped he's aided by two fantastic performances like because the movie also gets quieter there, and it's really it's a conversation. Um, and then you know he does the fun things with they show flashbacks to what would be modern Japan now and other parts of the world being attacked by titans, and you're seeing it like projected onto the scenery in interesting ways. Uh, he finds a interesting way to do a flashback rather than just doing a normal flashback. So um, yeah, really. Uh, I mean, I say this all the time when we're talking about Tokusatsu, but it's very clever filmmaking and uh, basically both these movies in their entirety with the way the, uh, the special effects uh, mesh and to a lesser degree, the visual effects as well. Um, it's very, very clever. Higuchi's really good at that stuff. Yeah. I, if, if I could describe his direction with one word, I'd say playful. It's mm -hmm. very playful and uh, at times almost experimental. Like you said, it's all projected onto this white space and they're almost interacting with the flashback as it happens. It's, uh, it's, it's really clever, like you said. That, that playfulness is probably why he and Anno get along so well, I bet. Because Anno is very similar. Yeah, you can tell that their sensibilities mesh really well. Absolutely. Not that they're the same. I think they're very distinct, but they definitely, they have similar ideas about how to make a film. For sure. And we'll talk more about that uh, synergy that they have when we get to Shin Godzilla, but we, there's a lot to say about them. 
So, uh, as the plot progresses, like I said, Shikishima's the Armored Titan. Uh, I mentioned there's a bit of a War of the Gargantuas vibe, and that's because these two characters, who to an extent kind of feel brotherly, I guess, if you really want to stretch things like that, they fight each other, and it's a sweet fucking fight. And we talked about <laughs> how uh, a fight scene gets called back during a monster fight, and it's because Shikishima's fight with Eren gets done once again but in giant monster form, and it's awesome, and anyone who can't see how beautiful that is is just lost on me. <laughs> <laughs> so you, 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 I was going to bring this up, and I'm glad that what you said reminded me. So you said, you know, this kind of brotherly fight. Mm -hmm. Are they not meant to be brothers? Because as Soda is dying, mm -hmm. he says to Aaron, your brother. Like, that's the last thing he says before he dies. But then it's think... not really paid off. So is the implication that he is Aaron's brother? I think it's like, imp he's either a blood brother or he's a brother in the sense that they're both, like, titans. humans that can turn into titans. Got it. Like, um, uh, that's what I got out of it, at least. Also, just straight up, the, the armored titan is one of the coolest fucking things. Oh, it's like, so rad. It's like, oh, man. It's basically... In, in silhouette and in facial structure, it's very similar to Aaron's Titan. But the difference is, is it's like its body is covered with plates that the inside of its body is also rejecting. So, like, there's these, like, tendrils of flesh and muscle strung between pieces of armor. It almost looks like they're trying to push the armor off in spots, especially around the shoulders. Um, it's a really, really fantastic, like... Uh, organic monster design that you see um uh a relationship with the way shin godzilla looks in shin godzilla like it's it's almost like shin godzilla in humanoid form actually and it's that's even you know more apparent in the fact that the organic bits of the armored titan glow purple yeah and i, I love things that glow purple so that made me happy <laughs> oh well, i appreciated that he he glows purple and then Aaron glows kind of like a tealish kind of green. Like they differentiated their two energies. And I love the shots in, you get to see the inside of the two Titans and they're like, they're like piloting these big mechanical things with like this gross goop all over their faces. It's so sweet. Like I geek out every time I see those shots cause they're the exact kind of thing I think I would do with the, with that yeah. kind of material. Uh, so it's like the humans are, <clears throat> they're inside the nape of the titan's neck and in fact that's how you kill a titan as you destroy the nape of its neck and it's almost like they're the brain or the central of the nervous system and then they have all these organic like like wires and veins coming off of them like they're controlling everything it's such a cool visual and it made me think of meatball machine because yes. in meatball machine there's the little alien critters who are kind of controlling human bodies in the same way and in a lot of ways, <clears throat> this, with its splattery nature, almost feels like a higher class, bigger budget version of like a Sushi Typhoon kind of splatter flick. You, you know, it absolutely does. And it's kind of cool that you mentioned that because uh, Yoshihiro Nishimura, who directed uh, the second Meatball Machine and did Tokyo Gore Police and all that, he worked on the effects team for both Attack on Titan films. So Well, that makes a lot of sense because yeah. it looks like his work. Yeah. So the second part kind of wraps up fairly quickly following that fight. They're 
trying to carry a nuke up to destroy the wall to let humanity through. Turns out Kubal Jin Kunimura is the colossal titan and leads to this big sweeping fight scene. And I wanted to use that scene to talk about the colossal titan itself because it's this amazing mixture of this cool rod puppet. Which, have you ever seen the behind-the-scenes footage of that, Dustin? Well, I was going to talk to you about this. <clears throat> mm -hmm. I have seen that behind-the-scenes footage, but I don't think that's from this movie. Oh. I think that is from a car commercial, of all things. Right. And I, because I don't, man, I was watching, I'm trying to figure out, because the Colossal Titan has, um, it kind of has, like, a Monsterverse syndrome, where there's, like, a lot of particle effects happening all over it yeah like it's shooting steam and embers and the air is <laughs> rippling around it and all this stuff almost to the point where it's hard to see it <clears throat> and this time watching i was trying i'm like is that is it a costume is it a puppet or is it all cg and i cannot tell because there's too much going on but i but i have seen that behind the scenes stuff and maybe it's the same puppet i don't know mm -hmm. but i traced that that footage back to a um to a car commercial so i i don't know if it's a rod puppet or not i can't tell what it is see i think it is because that commercial was made to coincide with the movies and i think higuchi himself even directed the commercial okay yeah then it's probably the same thing yeah okay. yeah but it is loaded with particle effects i guess like in universe it makes sense because it's the biggest one so it gives off the most heat but the only part of it that I'd say is 100% CG the entire time is probably its eyes because they're just like these balls of fire that kind of float mm -hmm. in their sockets. But it's I a great sequence. Use, I think they use CG on the Titans to 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 move their faces a little bit a lot of times. Like in close-ups of Aaron, you'll see his brow furrow and stuff like mm -hmm. that. I don't think that's animatronics. I think it's all them like nudging the facial expressions around in CG. Um, but it's really well done. It's really cleverly executed. That's not to say all the CGI in the movie is good because it's not. There's some, there's some stinky VFX moments in this, especially um, during a fight between um, Aaron and um, oh, what's your guy's name? I always forget his name. Oh, Shikishima. Uh, Shik Shikishima. Yeah. They their fight in this second movie for some reason when Shikishima lands a punch, they put these really pitiful blood overlay effects coming out of yeah. Aaron's mouth and stuff like I don't know what that is those show up every once in a while and they were frustrating to me because a lot of the other blood effects are really good so I don't know yeah. why those ones are so bad um <clears throat> but uh what what's amazing about these movies and tokusatsu in general and something that I appreciate about them as a special effects artist myself is that these are not big budget movies um, I don't know the... I was trying to find the the budget for Attack on Titan. Let me see. The, is, uh, I don't see it listed anywhere. I know that the budget for Shin Godzilla is $15 million. Which is insane. Insanely low for what they accomplished yeah. in that movie. That is how much a comedy costs in Hollywood. That's how much Superbad costs to make. And Superbad, you know, has basically no special effects. No cities get destroyed in Superbad. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> Um, actually, I think Superbad had Superbad had a bigger budget. So, um, and I would imagine the Attack on Titan movies had less money than Shin Godzilla because Shin Godzilla is a Godzilla movie. So um, it's wild to see what they're able to accomplish um, on such with such meager means. Yeah, and I mean, 
the interesting thing about filmmaking in Japan is that union rules are very laxed there, so the crews on these things work insane hours as well, so... I remember when we did our Kiri Amamea episode, we talked about how Zaram included a 48-hour shoot period. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, they're committed to the art form as well, which is very commendable, which is something that I get a lot out of, is like, you feel that craftsmanship. Even in the worst one, you feel it. Well, it, it, you know, there's actually, um, there's some movement in the anime world too, because the, the workload of the amount of anime that's made today is really pretty crushing on, uh, anime animators and artists. And, um, I've been reading a lot about that lately. Um, but what's interesting, and maybe this crosses over to the film world too, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, there was an interview with an animation director and I can't remember who it was right now, but someone asked him about, you know, how does budget factor into the quality of what you're making? And he goes, Oh, the budget doesn't factor in at all. Um, it's just, if the budget's too low, I may not be able to hire artists. He, he's essentially saying the budget, the overall, the budget matters very, very little. What matters is that you have skilled people on your team who are willing to work their faces off. And so when you watch one of these movies or you watch your favorite anime, like probably even the Attack on Titan anime, I don't know that Attack on Titan has a bigger budget than any other anime out there. I know it's high quality. That could literally just be due to the fact that they hired the right people and those people work their asses off to make it happen. And um, that, you know, I assume that's 100% true in the film world too because they are not working with much and they're making miracles in these things. No, I was, I read an interview with uh, Yoshihiro Nishimura when he was promoting the Meatball Machine sequel and he talks about how it's impossible to get funding for genre films in Japan, which is wild to me. But he talks about how like he works with absolutely nothing and like his crews are just extremely dedicated. And it's insane because like something like even the worst sushi typhoon movie is a million times way higher concept than the average indie splatter movie over here. Yeah. So I think it's just like, it's an interesting uh, mentality towards work and artistry that they have. Absolutely. Um, for better or worse, I don't know if it's a good thing, honestly, because on a human level, it seems like it might be yeah. a bad thing. On an artwork <laughs> level, it's an amazing thing. But on a human level, I don't know. They might be killing these poor people <laughs> with overwork. Yeah, you know, it shows. They're very tired looking crews and all these behind the scenes oh, featurettes yeah. I mean, they dig up. As, as indie filmmakers ourselves, I think we can, we understand, we feel the pain. Oh, for sure. Um, but yeah, I, in case it wasn't clear, Dustin and I are both very fond of Higuchi's Attack on Titan duology. Uh, critical reception was pretty mixed, especially on the second one. Uh, you know, a lot of actual film critics seem to enjoy the movies for what they were it's more so towards the fan base where you get these, the negative reception these movies never had a chance because the the franchise is so beloved and was and was so beloved when these movies came out right because like the anime had already started when these movies came out right it had already been out for two years yeah, yeah so the anime is already huge and and here's what i want to say because <clears throat> I don't want to be too salty toward fans of the anime who don't like the movies because recently I experienced this pain with Cowboy Bebop. Cowboy Bebop is an anime series near and dear to my heart. It is my favorite anime series of all time. 
filled with some of my favorite anime characters of all time. And the live action show was like, to me, a total kick in the nuts, uh, like it was for a lot of fans. But there are people who are not so attached to the anime who got a lot out of that show. And so I had the benefit of seeing these movies, you know, before I'd seen the anime. Um, I don't, I, you know, knew nothing about the anime pretty much. And so that definitely contributed to my enjoyment. And I do wonder if I had been a fan of the anime and I may give it a try when I watched it before, it was not really my thing, but I might, might give it another go. Um, I think, you know, if I had seen the anime first and liked it, I don't know how I would have felt about these. That's fair. You see, I, I had a slightly different experience where in high school I watched um, the first season of the anime. Yeah. I didn't get a lot out of it. I got a lot of uh, nihilistic, bleak, violent uh, anime nonsense mixed in with, well, basic shonen hero tropes, which aren't my thing. And then with the movies, I got like all the spectacle and the visceral violence and the monsters that I enjoy. But I also got very human characters that I could connect with on a more uh, relatable level than anything that the anime gave me. So, yeah. uh, you know, maybe if you're a fan, they're not for you. Somebody I uh, I know is a huge fan of the anime and can't stand the movies, and that's yeah. fine. But, man, no, I love them. They're very near and dear to me. And uh, like I said, they're probably two of my all-time favorite films period i don't i, I that's um i mean that's awesome that it surprises me but it's awesome you feel that way i they are not that high up for me but i as just like two like awesome a level b movies basically like two beautiful celebrations of tokusatsu and kaiju violence like i just i adore them and i will say that Watching them so close together this time made me appreciate all the payoffs in the second part. Because there's a lot. Thematically, visually, um, all that. And the final shot of the movie is really powerful in, mm. in reality. And not, not just powerful, but also hopeful, uh, which I appreciated. They don't end on a downer. They start on a downer. They don't end on a downer. Yeah, I don't think we really touched on the fact that like, in the midst of all the chaos and like the grief and the violence... There's a lot of beauty and tenderness and warmth in these movies. There's a lot of genuine camaraderie with the characters. You feel bad when a lot of them die. It's um there's a lot especially in the first movie there's a lot of humanity on display. You have soldiers who are leaving their families, leaving their children, soldiers who have been basically sold into the military by their parents because they can't afford food. You have soldiers who are in love with each other and they lose their loved ones in battle like there's 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 a lot going on and it, it's it's all interesting and it's all um uh emotionally compelling one of my favorite shots that has nothing to do with a monster in the two movies is uh at the end of the second one there's this beautiful shot of mikasa catching Eren as he's falling and all this debris is just collapsing around them and that is actually the shot that comes to mind whenever i think of these movies it's it's so rewarding, especially after seeing the journey those two characters go on. It's, yeah. their, it gives me the fuzzies. <laughs> their reconnection is pretty beautiful. And, you know, the thing with the scarf and mm -hmm. the whole, like, oh, okay, we got to move on to Shin Godzilla. But I want to say one thing because I just think it's so beautiful. In the beginning, they're talking about what, in the beginning of the first film, they're talking about what might be beyond the wall. And they look up and they see a bird. 
you know, and they're, they, they know that the ocean exists cause they've seen it in art. They see it painted on the side of a bomb actually that never detonated. And they just ponder the fact that like, Oh, that bird has seen the ocean. Like that bird has seen more of the world than at that point they think they ever will. And then that is paid off by the end of the second movie. And um, it's pretty beautiful. These are, it bums me out that people kind of don't like these. Cause yeah, they're pretty great. I, I would say, if you like tokusatsu stuff, give them a shot. Um, if you love the anime, try to watch them with an open mind because they're better than you think they are, I guess. Try to look at them as... Um, don't look at them as adaptations. Look at them as, like, you know, an artist's reinterpretation. Kind of like what James Whale's Frankenstein is to Mary Shelley's novel. It's not the same thing, but, like, it takes the themes and does its own thing with them. That's a That's a good comparison. Yeah. Uh, moving on, uh, we're going to be talking about a movie that means a ton to me. I think it means a ton to Dustin as well. Uh, we're going to be talking about Shin Godzilla, which was actually co-directed by Hideaki Anno, who anime fans definitely know for his work on Neon Genesis Evangelion, uh, for find, uh, founding Gainax, which became Studio Trigger. Uh, you know, kind of a legend in his field. He also directed the live-action Cutie Honey, which I think is kind of an awesome movie. Yeah, it's kind of an awesome movie. Uh, um, he also kind of revitalized the the mecha genre in the '80s with Gunbuster, so he's a big deal, this fella. Yeah, you know, he's a uh, he's got a lot under his belt. But first, a, a little bit of background info on Shin Godzilla for those who don't know. In 2014, Legendary released a reboot of Godzilla. It was incredibly successful financially. Um, and Toho decided, well, we're not going to have our thunder stolen. We're going to we're gonna bring our version of the big guy back. Uh, Higuchi was brought on first, probably because of his work on Attack on Titan. And uh, he was given the task of trying to get Anno on board. Anno was going through a very rough period of his life. Uh, he just finished the third Evangelion rebuild film and was suffering from a bad bout of depression and didn't want to work on anything. Higuchi... Convinced him to do it. Ano wrote a script that was heavily inspired by the 311 event, that is to say the Fukushima nuclear disaster, followed by the earthquake and tsunami of 2011. And the result is a movie that's a little bit political black comedy, a little bit of a biting satire on bureaucracy itself, and a thoroughly entertaining, in my opinion, Godzilla flick. Dustin, want to describe the plot of Shin Godzilla? Uh, uh, Godzilla attacks Japan and fights bureaucracy. That's pretty much it. That's it. It's a very simple story. Um, it's about a bunch of hardworking, uh, quirky bureaucrats coming together to figure out a way to stop Godzilla before the USA nukes Japan again. They're basically the dirty dozen of bureaucrats because they even bring them in. They're like, listen, you guys are the, the weirdos and the misfits and the the rebels and like and i'm just like they're all in, like wearing suits and like look very proper so it's funny that they're all the rebels and weirdos um but yeah there's a plucky little team uh who are actually doing work while the rest of the bureaucrats just run in circles essentially yeah it's about um you know the dangers of dense bureaucratic systems uh what happens when a government isn't planned for a disaster and it's also about, uh, 
I, I want to say to an extent it's about the relation that Japan has with its post-war uh, post history. Uh, the war gets brought up very often as it would. It's a very important part of Godzilla himself. Um, and I think that, like, Anno himself said the only reason he'd do Godzilla is if he could bring it back to what the original movie had been about. And I think he does that in an interesting way without explicitly tying Godzilla to the same origin. Because, you know, he doesn't have that in this. Godzilla himself is very different from the original. Yeah, his origin is fairly questionable in this. Like, they don't... They, I don't, they never really pinpoint it, right? They say that he may be, like, powered by nuclear... Like, nuclear means, but... There's a lot of talk, but I don't think they ever really land on anything. Yeah, so basically, basically what happens, like the closest thing to an origin we get is that the U.S. is worried about being outed as bad guys because they think Godzilla was a prehistoric animal that fed on nuclear waste that they dumped into the Pacific Ocean years back, which is how they kind of get involved in the plot. But no, Godzilla himself is kept pretty vague, and I think that's for the best because he's spooky in this movie. He's pretty weird. He's pretty yeah. un unearthly. They keep calling him a god incarnate, um, which is a good uh, moniker, I think, because he is, like I talked about the Titans being innocent. Um, he is not only innocent, because he's just an animal, basically, but he's pretty indifferent to what is going on around him, too. Like, he, like, you don't get the sense that he aimed to attack Japan. That's just kind of where he landed. Yeah, he, he, he spends a lot of time standing around and being shot at. <laughs> yeah, no, he's very, uh, he comes across as very unaware of what's going on around him. This isn't a Godzilla who gets shot at and then, like, lashes out and attacks. This is a Godzilla that gets shot at and keeps walking in the same direction. That's all he does. He just walks. I think that's even a line in the movie. One of the uh, bureaucrats says behaviorally all he seems to do is move and yeah. uh you know it, it's an interesting depiction because i think a lot of godzilla fans tend to like a lot of personality in their godzilla i don't i, I tend to agree with that i don't think that would have worked for this necessarily oh, no i was thinking about that um he uh they give him fish eyes they give him the like the indifferent cold eyes of an aquatic animal he has no eyebrows he doesn't make expressions. He roars when he's, I don't know, threatened or scared. You don't really know. Um, and he spends a lot of the movie just reacting. He just walks and reacts to what's happening to him. He's, he's as indifferent as the weather. He, you know, he, he you could, you could sub in almost any natural disaster for Godzilla in this movie, which really harkens back to the meaning of the first film. Yeah, for sure. And they kind of, touch upon him being representative of the three disasters that I mentioned earlier by giving him three distinct forms. Uh, he initially starts off as like a tadpole-like creature, which you could take as a tsunami because he brings in a tidal wave with him. He becomes this big red dinosaur creature and then becomes the one that you've seen in all the ads where he's got the scrawny arms and the big veiny body. The uh, the red dinosaur one is my favorite because he, he doesn't have front arms. He has got little nubbins. And he just kind of like scoot scoots across the ground. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's kind of adorable, except he's killing thousands as he does it. But like, he, <laughs> but he just kind of like scoots, like like he doesn't know what yeah. else to do. Yeah, it's it is interesting that you bring that up because when I saw this in a theater, it was a packed theater when it had its brief run over here. 
people laughed when he first showed up on screen. But then, like, as it kept going, there was, like, a silence in the theater, which I think shows just how effectively used the monster is in this movie. There's a thin line between grotesquerie and comedy. You know what I mean? Like, mm. when you first see him, he's got these... He's pretty cute. Like, he's got these big bug eyes. He's got this... His mouth is kind of agape because he hasn't figured out how to breathe oxygen yet. And he's just, you know, gushing blood or what or organic material i don't know what it is out of his gills as his gills are changing to lungs and all this stuff like he is sort of adorable like i understand why people would laugh i probably laughed when i first saw him in the theater too um but yeah after that he he just gets gradually more scary and and leading up to you seeing like the full capacity of his destructive abilities yeah um which is a sequence I'll touch on later because I think it's, uh, you know, I'm sure it's no mystery that most of Higuchi's work as the director on this was on the effects end of things. Uh, but that sequence in particular I'm going to save for a little bit later. I just want to round out the cast right quick because we have some returning members from Attack on Titan. We have Hiroki Hasegawa's Rando, our lead character, or closest thing to a lead character the movie has. Uh, Satomi Ishihara comes back. We'll talk about her performance. Uh, <laughs> we have Yutaka Takanochi as Hideki Asakawa, who is the aide to the Prime Minister. He's a solid enough character that there are times where I wish he was given more screen time. And then rounding out the very big cast, because there's a lot of freaking people in this movie. Oh, we've got so we've got Renasugi as the Prime Minister. We've got Akira Moto as another one of his aides. We've got Jun Kunimura coming back as a military general. We've got my favorite, Mikako Ichikawa, as a biologist who's just a wonderful, adorable, cold little character. I love her so much. And uh, <laughs> most exciting for me as well, we have Shinya Sukamoto, director of Tetsuo the Iron Man, as a biologist studying Godzilla. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know he was in there. Yeah, he's the one with the pink towel around his neck the whole time. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, Godzilla himself is played by Mansai Nomura, who's a very celebrated actor. He's a leading man, actually, in Japan, best known for his roles in the Onimoji movies. He was hired to play Godzilla through motion capture because of his uh, experience with a certain form of traditional dance that I think Godzilla was modeled after. That's interesting. It's almost it's kind of like Benedict Cumberbatch playing Smaug, right? It kind of is, like, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's like, does it really need to be an A-list actor? Probably not, but it's cool that it is. And, and I, he, he was obviously a bit of a late addition, not just because of the nature where you know you do post production, uh, you do motion capture during post production. But originally, Godzilla was going to be practical in this. Higuchi wanted very badly to inter, uh, incorporate a mixture of animatronics and puppetry to the point where a big animatronic Godzilla was the first thing that leaked from the movie. It caused a bit of a stir online. It kept breaking down, from what I understand, and Anno himself was just not happy with the results, so Higuchi opted to go towards CG, which I know a lot of fans were not happy about. I don't mind. I think Godzilla, for the most part, looks really good in this thing, especially for their first attempt at a fully CG Godzilla. They obviously had to do... So I was, I was watching the effects really, really close um, this time, and... Um... With you know, they did an amazing job within their budget, but the some of the CGI, especially in the early forms of Godzilla, they do break down a little bit the closer the camera gets. Yeah, like the further the way a camera is, the better they look. But when it gets close, you can see that 
they're you know from a technical standpoint they're designed like video game characters they have painted texture maps and normal maps on top of pretty simple geometry especially the early ones they're not they're not super duper detailed 3d models um one of the places you can see it most is on uh, Godzilla's final form in the flaps of his mouth. Um, yeah. The, the highlights are just painted on. Like, those are not real rendered highlights coming from a light. Those are just, those are literally painted on the texture. They're not dynamic. They don't move. Um, but it all looks great from a distance. And what really sells Godzilla in his final form better than the early forms is that motion capture performance. Because... He's only moving the way a suit actor would. Mm-hmm. And because we already know what Godzilla moves like, we've seen it 30 times, you know, um, it's good that he has that limited range of motion. And it's good that that movement is based on something real and not hand animated because the hand animated stuff is a little wonkier. Um, but the fact that they have a real, you know, piece of motion capture data to, to base Godzilla's movements on really helps sell it, despite the fact that it's not the most robust 3d model ever made. Yeah. I think that despite how different and strange this interpretation of Godzilla is, what really sells it still feeling like a traditional Godzilla is the way they chose to portray him through movement. He still moves. He moves almost identically to the fifties Godzilla. When you think about it, he does. And and that's a, like, I've talked to you about this. I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast, but I'm about to, I have a running theory about there's a two part theory actually on CGI used in movies. One of them is is that I think most CGI that's called, you considered bad CGI when it comes to characters and monsters and things like that is almost 100% the way it moves. I don't actually think it has that much to do with the way it looks. I think the unca- uncanny valley really kicks in when you see something move in a way that you can tell is not the way something moves. It's that weightlessness that people talk about with CGI. Um Monsters are usually over animated, but like the theory I have about it is if you want creatures and things that aren't, you know, aren't based on reality to look better, you should stop trying to make them look like real flesh. You should stop trying to make them move like a real thing moves and make them look the way a special effect looks. If that makes sense. Like, I think, I think a CGI, and this is just my wild theory. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think CGI would look better if we stopped trying to make their skin look like skin and started trying to make it look like rubber. Because that is... And maybe eventually when things get more advanced, we can move on to making them look 100% real. And I'm not saying that there aren't CGI creatures that never succeeded because they look real. I'm not saying that. But especially on lower budget stuff, the closer you try to get it to reality, the more the audience's brain is going to reject it. But if you make it look like something they're used to from other movies... If you're making a CGI Godzilla, but you make him look like that rubber suit, I think people are going to buy it more. But that's just me. That's just how I feel about it. And I think parts of Shin Godzilla kind of prove my point a little bit. Because he does not look like a real living thing. He he. It, in fact, I think most people mistook him for a suit or a puppet in the trailers. Be, mostly because of the way he moves. And also just the clever ways he's... Um, for lack of a better word, filmed. I guess technically it's the way he's rendered, but the way he's composited into scenes, the camera placement, all that combined with the way he moves are what helps sell that creature so well. 
I agree. Um, <clears throat> sorry. I agree 100%. I think that, like, when that trailer came out, I was among the ones who was fooled and thought that was a suit. I, I found did, out... Yeah, I totally did, yeah, too. It works really well. I'm, we talked earlier about how Shinji Higuchi and Hideki Anno kind of have this synergy together as co-directors, and they're good friends. They've known each other for decades at this point. Shinji Higuchi is actually the namesake of Shinji in Evangelion. Um, I didn't so know that. that's cool. Yeah, it it is. I don't know how Shinji Higuchi feels about that, given what kind of a character <laughs> Shinji in Eva is. But yeah. Yeah, um, but you really feel that in this movie because. It, Higuchi's handling the Godzilla sequences, Anno's handling all the human element, and it, everything flows very organically. It does not feel like two directors working on two different sections of a movie. Everything fits stylistically together so well, I think. It, it does. It really does. And and Anno, um, part of that is just because they both have such robust visual styles. Um, Anno likes to put his camera in weird places. He likes to use camera movements to punctuate a moment. Um, he, he does it, um, you know, I haven't seen a ton of his live action output. I've seen this and I've seen Cutie Honey and Cutie Honey is visually glorious just the way he uses the camera and editing and things like that. So, um, but I wanted to, because I, I, was, I was trying to look up stuff about the VFX of the movie and there's not a lot. Um, there's not much out there. There's not a lot of information. But I did find an uh, interesting interview with Higuchi where he talked about how he – okay, so he worked with Anno, obviously. They worked close together mm -hmm. on the movie. But there's kind of a third um, director, and I'm a little embarrassed not to know his name right now. I'd have to find it. But there's a completely separate person in, in charge of the visual effects because Higuchi was only in charge of the practical effects. Yeah. He was in charge of the miniatures. Um, almost anytime anything gets destroyed, it's actually a miniature things like that. And Higuchi never, he said he met the VFX people once and then never again. Cause in the interview they asked him, he's like, what was it like working with your VFX team? He's like, I didn't work with the VFX team. <laughs> they were kind of on their own. I, I have to believe that he, because, you know, he was in charge of the practical destruction that he's the one who designed the shots and edits, you know, mm -hmm. and did his part and handed it off to VFX. But um, really, you know, we, we've talked about before how Toku movies usually have two directors and, this one kind of had a silent third director, uh, which may actually be a team and not a person, but um, credit where it's due if we can find their names. But um, Shinji uh, Higuchi wasn't really that involved with the CGI, oddly enough. You know, his, now, his puppet got replaced and then someone else kind of took over. I wish that because obviously they did shoot stuff with that puppet. I would love to see those takes. I've seen like just the behind the scenes videos of it and stuff like that, but I feel yeah. like, you know would be a nice curiosity. I'm glad you brought that up, though, because that kind of leads to that sequence I want to talk about what I mentioned earlier, which is Godzilla's big destruction of Tokyo, set at night, where the U.S. military is bombing Godzilla. It looks like it's hurting him. It just makes him angry. Uh, Shiro Sagasu has a great piece of music in this called Who Will Know that starts to play as Godzilla's back glows up, and he just dis decimates, decimates... Tokyo, his jaw splits open like a reaper from Blade 2, and he just <laughs> laser beams everything. And I think it's one of the most iconic scenes in Toku film at this point. Like, it's been solidified. Anybody who talks about Shin Godzilla always talks about that scene. And I think that, you know, now that you've mentioned that there's a third director, kudos to them, because that is some 
of the most visually striking Godzilla stuff I've ever seen. Well, I found his name, oh. um, or their name, uh, Atsuki Sato, who is also the editor, is the VFX oh. supervisor. Um, and then there's another person named Tetsuo Oya, who was the VFX producer. So those two guys um, deserve some credit in this because the VFX, especially since they had to fix something that they didn't know they were going to have to fix. Like they yes. thought that we were, they were going to have a practical Godzilla and it didn't work out. So they, they, you know, they had to pull through. Um, I want to, I want to say something about that, that destruction sequence, the, when you see Godzilla's breath weapon mm-hmm. for the first time, um, I remember, so I went to see that, that movie came out right around my birthday in September. Mm-hmm. And my wife got me tickets to see it at the Alamo Draft House, three hours away, which was the only way we could see it. It was the closest place playing it. So road trip in the morning, went there. Um, Alamo Draft House theaters are the one that we went to is unfortunately closed now. They, um, I know there's been controversy with the Draft House and so on and so forth, but it's a wonderful theater going experience. Um, I got to eat a burger and drink a beer in silence because you cannot talk in an Alamo Draft House theater; they will kick you out, which I love. Um, but I got to sit in silence, eat my burger, enjoy my beer and watch a Godzilla movie on the big screen, uh, which I think at that point, other than the American reboot in 2014, I had never seen a Godzilla movie in a movie screen. So that was really exciting to me. Um, but the moment that he, uh, let's talk about this breath weapon because it's not just, it's not just a beam. It's not just radiation. It's not just fire. First, he breathes out a flammable gas. Uh-huh. A heavy flammable gas that rolls through the streets in a super ominous shot. The only lighting is the street lights, so Godzilla's underlit by this weird orange glow, and he's just going, bah, and he's breathing this flammable gas everywhere. It's very anime. And I remember sitting in the theater and being like, that's weird. What the fuck is he doing? Like, is it like poison? Is it going to kill? Like, this is different. What is he doing? And then, as Seb mentioned, his jaw splits open. Basically, he lights a match in his mouth. That is essentially what is going on. And he ignites the gas that he just breathed everywhere. And then you watch. First, it's just an inferno. Everything erupts into purple fire. It's beautiful. God, now Godzilla is lit and underlit by this weird purple glow. He looks like a, like a Lovecraftian monster <laughs> from another dimension. And then uh, starting here and then even later on, he is able to narrow the the inferno into a beam that cuts through things like a laser it's so anime and it's so badass and i don't think they'll ever be able to top it in any other godzilla movie no they they tried they um i mean they tried in the anime series godzilla singular point there's a very similar sequence in that and it uh, it's shin godzilla light that's what that sequence is um that and i think that sequence in particular is such a beautiful marriage of Higuchi's sensibilities and Anno's sensibilities because it's got the grim apocalyptic vibe of the Evangelion series but it's also got like the spectacle and bombastic nature of the Attack on Titan movies for instance it's just everything that works about them as a team is on display in that sequence I think yeah it's it's glorious it's the centerpiece of the film um not to say the rest of the film like falters in any way. I don't ever think it reaches quite that height ever again. Um, no, like every time it, I revisit it, I'm like, it's pretty relaxed after that. It kind of is. And then <laughs> I just remember sitting in the theater, like next to my wife 
and just like feeling my eyes get bigger and bigger and bigger <laughs> as the sequence was happening. Like I was in hog heaven with like ketchup smeared on my face, just like a child watching this this crazy thing on the screen. I have very distinct memories of that day. It was very cool. So yeah, uh, the from there on the plot progresses. They they come up with an idea to defeat Godzilla. They use a blood coagulant to freeze him. It works, and then uh, you know the, these madmen, being the people that they are, they decide to end it with a shot of zombie Godzilla creatures growing out of his tail, <sighs> which... which is so wonderful. And Seb, it makes me so sad that that's never going to be paid off. Never. Never. It's yeah. That's the thing is that this movie was a massive success financially and critically. It won Best Picture at the Japanese Academy Awards that year. Um, you know, to this day, there are God Shin Godzilla public attractions like a zip line that recently opened up. This is a big movie, and even over here, it was really well received. Even if a lot of fans are kind of divided on it. That being said, Toho's decided to move forward in different directions. They wanted to try taking Godzilla into more marketable uh, angles, I guess. So, you know, the whole it's concept fine. of... It's fine. We have to live with it. I mean, I, I'm always happy when there's new Godzilla coming, regardless of where it comes from, because, you know, this is a really recent development. It's an embarrassment of riches, the amount of Godzilla and Kaiju content we're getting these days. Well, you know, it's funny yeah, because... I, I just... I would love to see that paid off, though. That's all. I would just love to see those little creatures do their thing. Yeah, like, it's an interesting cliff note to end on, but I also kind of like it as just being this open-ended thing because it kind of leaves you with the sense that Godzilla is something that's going to keep evolving and changing and they have to deal with it. Actually, kind of reminds me of the current state of affairs that some of us are still dealing with in terms <laughs> of a particular virus. Anyways. Yeah, that's true. Like, like the, the little creatures are the Omicron variant of Godzilla. Yeah, like... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm sure you could do, like, a breakdown of COVID with the different forms of Godzilla now that I think about it. Oh, for sure. Oh, you know what we, we forgot to talk about? Um, we built up to it and didn't talk about it, but um, uh, sodomy, uh, sodomy, Satomi. All <laughs> right. Ishihara. So she plays, uh, she plays the American envoy to Japan, and uh, they made her speak English, and... Um, Poor girl, she strug she struggled. Uh, in in an interview, she said that it caused her to break down into tears many times on set because of how difficult speaking English, uh, basically phonetically, was for her. But even then, her performance isn't great. It's it's a real bummer because she's so good in Attack on Titan. Mm -hmm. Like she's just she's just she's so good in it, and she's my favorite part of it. And then. Yeah, um, I think her name, and it, she's also not believably, um, I think she's supposed to be half Caucasian, right? Because her last name is Patterson. Yeah. And like, it, it's just a weird thing. Like, I, I, I guess maybe I appreciate them. They're like, hey, we like this actress. Let's give her a part. But she was not the right person for the role. It's one of the only, like, blotches on the film, I think. Because every time her scenes come up, I just cringe at hearing her try to speak English. Yeah, it, like, it, it kind of is a blotch on the cast because everyone else is really solid in their respective roles. I think Hiroki Asagawa is a really compelling lead. I've already mentioned how much I love Mikako Ichikawa in her role. Uh, everyone is really she's strong. The definition, she's the definition of a character that Seb gets a crush on when he's watching a movie. She is. Like, I, 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 think, I think Seb secretly like just like really loves greasy women. Because, like, she... <laughs> What's the secret? 
<laughs> she just looks like like and, and here's the, the funny thing is like um I think Ano and Higuchi both like like to take beautiful women and not like defeminize them but declamorize them you see it in attack on titan you, you see it in this because she's a gorgeous woman like she's um and not to say she's like a hideous beast in this movie or anything but she's playing a character who clearly doesn't care about her appearance or her hygiene and she just looks a little i don't know she looks like maybe she's got some grease that's yeah that's she's all. you know she looks tired and she looks haggard and she keeps muttering stuff about how man is worse than godzilla and you know she'd she, found her way to my heart almost immediately this is i'm gonna let my weeb show a little bit here but she reminds me of susie from little witch academia like just yes. the way she talks and the way she carries herself which i know i think susie is also your favorite character from little witch isn't she yes that is the sub character yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i love susie too but i'm sure you love her more than i do <laughs> and hey there's a there's a susie episode of little witch academia which homages shin godzilla at one point so that'll... it does and that's actually my favorite episode so far that i've watched i love that episode i think it's called susie world or akko and susie world something like that yeah it's i think it's supposed to be like a play on uh alice in wonderland it might be akko yeah. and susie land or something but anyways little witch academia is great guys you should all go watch that for sure yeah it's got nothing to do with tokusatsu but it's really cute and well animated actually it kind of has a connection because it's animated by studio trigger which is was formed out of the rubble of gainax which was established by hideaki Anno. so yeah. there's a connection amazing uh it all you see guys we're on this we know how to get our tangents on track we planned that yeah uh did you have any like final notes to make on shin godzilla while we're still on it um no but i did i did think of 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 something about uh, Attack on Titan when you were talking about Shin Godzilla that I wanted to bring up because you brought up the the inherent political nature of Shin Godzilla like mm -hmm. and it's really obvious in Shin Godzilla like not in like a like a ham-fisted kind of way but it's a political allegory commentary but I have a feeling that Attack on Titan is too and there were parts of it where I was like oh I think this might be at least referencing the Edo period of Japan because mm -hmm. um, the Edo period of Japan was basically the shogunate in charge of Japan was like, no foreigners, um, no one leaves, we don't want culture here that isn't Japanese. And they had this um, this period where they were very insular and, um, I mean, great things came out of that period, horrible things came out of that period. But I couldn't help but think of it when I was watching Attack on Titan because it's a similar thing where... What happens when you wall somebody off like that? When you take an entire culture and and they can't reach the outside world? And it really made me start to think about like, are there other walled cities in the world of Attack on Titan? Are there other humans out there? You know, because we only see the the city in Japan in the Attack on Titan movies. Mm -hmm. No, that's you know that's a fair point. And I guess to like tie them more col uh, to tie Attack on Titan and Shin Godzilla politically, they are both about. Uh, younger kind of outside figures trying to break through a system that's been established and is still run by a group of older, more singular-minded folks. Uh, it, it, obviously, in Attack on Titan, it's a little more cartoonish. Jun Kunimura's character is like a comic book villain in it. In this, it's more like the Prime Minister's just a befuddled older man who's set in his ways. What's interesting about Shin Godzilla 2 in, in that sense is that 
it's not really anti-bureaucracy. It just has an opinion about the right and wrong way to do it. Because yeah. in the end, bureaucracy wins, but it's bureaucracy born from innovation and the next generation of, of bureaucrats. Um, the It's failed by tradition and boredom and people who, like as you say, won't let go of, of tradition. Yeah. I think that, you know, if I had to give any final thoughts on Shin Godzilla as a movie, it would just be that it's the movie that I always cite whenever... People like, you know, people who aren't familiar with this stuff, they like to joke about Godzilla because they still think of the old stuff. They think of the dubbed movies they saw as a kid. I always go to Shin Godzilla as an example of just how relevant the character still is and can be. And as an example of how you take something from the past and evolve those themes into something that is relevant. I think in a lot of ways Shin Godzilla can be viewed as like the right way to remake something. It, it, it kind of does the same thing that, like, John Carpenter's The Thing did to The Thing from Another World. That's what this does with the 50s Godzilla. And, you know, I, I went to see this movie with a group of friends in college. I was in film school at the time. And none of them were Godzilla fans. They just liked the idea of a trip to Toronto to see a weird foreign film on a big screen. And they kind of left it asking, like, are all Godzilla movies like that? So I think it's a, it could be a good um, gateway movie in a sense. Oddly, oddly enough, you know, my, my wife who is not at all like into anime or toku or anything like I am, um, she like at least didn't dislike it. Like, I think she was into it. And I think part of that was how, how quirky the filmmaking is because, um, at the time, I don't know that this is true anymore because this director has, has come so far from where he used to be like aesthetically in the way he makes his films, but at the time, I was like, that was a little bit like Wes Anderson made a Godzilla movie. Just the, I can see it. Just the quirkiness of it and the way it's edited and the way it's shot. And um, she's a big Wes Anderson fan, so I think she connected with it on that level. Just the the weirdness of the characters and the quirkiness and the, the dryness of the humor, I think, is what she connected with. But um, that does speak to the power of it because she could not give a shit about Godzilla, but she she was into Shin Godzilla. I'm glad you mentioned the quirkiness because I think as like as a last note on it, I'll also say that despite all the seriousness of the conversation we've had about the movie, it's still very funny. It, it's very fun. funny, yeah. Yeah. So Shinji Higuchi as a director, he's you know still working on stuff. He's actually directed Shin Ultraman, which comes out hopefully in a few months. I am horribly <laughs> excited for this movie. I I think Dustin is as well. I'm very excited. I it, it's it's I am so envious of Higuchi and Ano who grew up loving the things that you and I love and are now getting to play with them cuz Ano is making a common writer movie which is like his dream to play with that character and they've both got to make Godzilla. They've both they, they're just getting to do such amazing things and they're fans. Not just fans, but like obsessive intellectual fans of the things they love. And that's why the work is so full of heart and so well done because they care about it so much. They care about it enough to do interesting things with it as well, which... 100%. Yeah. So I guess to finish off this spotlight on Higuchi, I just say that, you know, his legacy as a special effects director is noteworthy, but on top of that, he's developed into a really strong voice as a director himself. 
he knows how to get good performances out of people, he knows how to tell a compelling story, and he's never let go of his love for the genre or uh, become cynical from being involved with it for so long. Yeah, which is which is pretty beautiful. Um he I mean we've said this before. I think we've we've said it about um who did we say were we talking about Ano? I can't remember who we were talking about. We were like I think I could hang out with that guy. And I think Kaguchi's the same kind of person. I'm like I feel like I could hang out with him and not feel weird and I think we would have stuff to talk about. Yeah, I uh I 100% agree. So, I think we have one episode left in this uh slate for THK, and I'm not going to give any spoilers, because honestly, I uh, I don't like to give spoilers. I like to be ambiguous and annoy people. We're going to get weird. We're going to get weird. We're going to get weird. It's getting weirder weird. than the Final Wars episode. We're just going to devolve into monkey noises. <laughs> <laughs> and another, that, that was Kane Kasugi, and he was talking about not liking seafood. THK! 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 It's just an hour and 20 minutes of that. (laughs) Uh, We'll see you guys in the next one. Bye.